Direction point. Direction point. A Doctor Who Podcast Network. Doctor Who Literature, the podcast taking you through the world of the Doctor Who novelizations put out by Target Books from 1973 onward in publication order. We're a member of the Direction Point Doctor Who Podcast Network. My name is Jason, and I'm your host on this journey, this very long journey. My in-laws are moving, downsizing. I've been storing a lot of my stuff in their garage, after my mother downsized years ago herself. In my in-law's garage are all of my 1990s Doctor Who novels, all those NAs and MAs and EDAs and PDAs. But now that they're downsizing, I'm going through my old possessions, and I found a Mickey Mouse Weeble. Do you remember the Weebles? They wobble, but they don't fall down. And yes, my kid, who'd never heard of a Weeble before, immediately set out to disprove that slogan. This Weeble was part of the 1976 Mickey Mouse Club set, which you can find on eBay. It contained Weebles for Mickey, Pluto, a couple of Mouseketeers, as well as an actual clubhouse with a flagpole, toy chairs, a toy mailbox, the toy film camera. In fact, if you go on YouTube, you can still find the TV advertisement. Who's the leader of the club that's made for you and me? M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-E Now you can have a Mickey Mouse Clubhouse in your own home. You can put on your own show. I got the light. Here's the camera. Where's Mickey? Who's the leader of the club that's made for you and me? Where's Mickey Pluto? The Mickey Mouse Clubhouse comes with Mickey Mouse, Pluto, and two Musketeers. Some assembly required. New from Romper Room. Now I still have with me a few remaining of my children's books from the 1970s, which I've passed on to my kid, including the American translation of The King by Dick Bruna, and I found the original Dutch version of that, Der Koenig, in Amsterdam a few years ago, so now we have both. Other than those books, this Mickey toy is one of the few things I have left from my 1970s childhood. I don't need it, I don't have space for it, and my kid is too old for it now. But boy, I would love to have that whole Mickey Mouse Club set back. When I look at my copy of my Unearthly Child novelization, published in October 1981, I feel very similar emotions. This book was part of the second ever batch of Target books that my father bought me, February 1985. I got three books that weekend, including The Demons, Episode 8 of this podcast, and The Visitation, coming up in about six weeks on this podcast. My copy of Unearthly is one of the four novelizations that I had Terence Dix sign for me at the L.I. Who convention in November 2014, and it's the second of those four to come up in this pilgrimage, Terror of the Autons, episode 14 of this podcast being the first. And stay tuned to find out which other two books he signed. Think how long ago February 1985 was, never minding 1976. Last week at Gallifrey One in Los Angeles, I met so many young podcasters and other fans who were 19 or 20 at now in 2023. 1985 is literally as old to them as, say, 1954 would be to me. How many other things that I 
own in February 1985 do I still have following several moves, including two cross-country moves in both directions? Hardly any. I still have all my Hardy Boys books, although I am looking to pass those on. That's about it. My choose-your-own-adventures? Long, long gone. My childhood desk drawer full of comics, half DC and Marvel, half Whitman, what my father called joke books full of Donald Duck and Uncle Scrooge and even some Looney Tunes characters. Not a single one of those still exist. Although, side note, I did replace the very first two issues of Batman I ever owned, scripted by Len Wein, 1979. That was the last time I was at New York City Comic Con. So the fact that I still have a book that I bought in February 1985, exactly 38 years after it was purchased for me, kind of incredible. Unearthly Child and Mickey Mouse, the last surviving bits of my youth. And you know what else is incredible? The novelization itself, Doctor Who and An Unearthly Child, that's the subject of this week's episode, episode 65. After the break, joining me is Mark from the Trap One podcast, one of the best friends this show has ever had. We're going to go deep and we're going to go long talking about the book, the TV episodes, and as is characteristic for any conversation that I have with Mark, we're going to talk about many, many, many other things as well. And then following that, my breakdown of the text of this novelization and why it just means so darn much to me after all this time. Like Mickey Mouse. The vervoids are probably the best parody joke in Doctor Who. They're hermaphroditic plants. A lot of plants are. So there you but, go. That's see, it's based on science. No, they'll ship anything. There are probably 11 and handle shippers out there. You just have to drill a hole where his mouth is, and you're all set. You know yeah. he needs the room. I've seen it in pictures. I'm not saying you're not a fan. I'm saying you don't know what the f*** you're talking about. Doctor Who gives a f- A drunken Doctor Who podcast for the end times. You are listening to Doctor Who Literature. Keep turning the pages! So Mark is back with us this week. Mark from the Trap One Podcast. How are things across the pond? Uh, well, they're, they're not too bad. Uh, obviously, politically, it's uh, it's it's an absolute uh, trash fire, as um, is, is it you say, um, dumpster fire. I think you say in America. But, oh uh, yes, dumpster yeah, fire. So, yeah, we're uh, we're getting uh, we're coming into spring, so so it's uh, it's the weather's getting better at least. And it'll probably be time for a new prime minister soon, right? You change them every ninety days. Is that how it works? F- fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We can only hope. Well, I, of course, am back from Gallifrey 1 in Los Angeles, where I recorded most of last week's episode and also a good portion of next week's episode. What's going on with UK fandom? Uh, Do you have any conventions coming up or guest appearances coming up? Uh, Well, very locally to me, the Carlisle Comic Con is next month. I believe it's second only to the San Diego Comic-Con. Uh, and they'd announced uh, Sophie Aldred and Fraser Hines. Uh, and uh, now Sophie Aldred's cancelled. So uh, so we've got Fraser Hines in, in, in Carlisle. Um, 
yeah other than that i'm uh, i mean there is stuff in the uk but i live so far away from everything but there's always like the bfi screenings uh for the for the blu-ray collections i think the uh the sea devils ones is coming up um and then uh yeah sort of utopia convention which i'd like to try and go to sometime uh, a lot of our mutual friends go to that one uh but uh, yeah, I'm not sure what I'm going to be able to do this year because I'm hoping to save up to go to Galley next year. So uh, yeah, I need to uh, I, I need to start saving up for that now. I think Galley is definitely quite an experience. You're going to have over three thousand fans in attendance in the same hotel. They seem to have more and more guests every year between classic series companions and doctors new series performers plus the occasional showrunner. Mm-hmm. There were three big finish doctors and multiple big finish companions this year, as well as dozens of big finish writers plus other doctor who publishers. So the way galley works is it is a five track program. So every uh, hour on the hour, there are five different things to do. Usually one of the big name performers is on the main stage. Then there are, Photo opportunities, autograph lines, panels run by uh, some of the middle tier guests, panels run by the fans, special events like the Jody Whitaker script reading. They also had a Colin and Bonnie Langford script reading. Uh, you can't go to everything. You have to really make a lot of painful decisions as to what you're going to do. So when you're there, it is an absolute whirlwind three days, Mm -hmm. not even counting evening programming. One of the panels that I was on was an evening panel. So if you come, you're going to be very, 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 very busy. And hopefully you can do a live trap one episode there with the help of yours truly. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be terrific. Yeah. Uh, that'd be, uh, that would be good. So yeah, hopefully, uh, yeah, I can, uh, I can make that over and, uh, we'll, uh, we can record, uh, maybe a, a doctor literature and a trap one there. That'd be terrific. The only downside is that you're coming to Los Angeles in February. And when people think of Los Angeles, they think of palm trees and bright summer sun and Beach Boy songs year-round. February is rainy season in L.A., and it was pretty much overcast and in the mid-60s every day, which is the same weather that I could get in New York this time of year, thanks to global warming. Right. New York's about 20 degrees warmer than usual, and it has not snowed once this winter. But With that being said, you're still in Los Angeles, so if you come early and leave late, you will have plenty of time for sightseeing opportunities. Yeah, great. It's it's got to be warmer than here anyway, so it'd be be a nice escape from from February in the north of England. Oh, yeah, you're going to be at a much lower latitude, that's for sure, than you're used to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that'd be, uh, be nice, be a nice, be a nice break, definitely. Here it's uh, it doesn't get light till about uh, that that this time of year it's kind of not light till nearly eight a.m. and then it's dark by five p.m. So uh, I'm sure it'll be uh, a lot more pleasant than that. Yeah, even New York is further south than that, so we have a little more daylight. And then of course Los Angeles mm-hmm. being even further south, you get a lot more daylight in February than you would in uh, in Carlisle. So yeah. this week we are here. And you can only do this once in the life of any podcast that covers the entire show. This is the only episode where we are discussing Doctor Who's very, very, very first story. So 
we were playing our usual game of I'll show you mine if you show me yours. And I have, mm-hmm. ta-da, I am holding up, well, it's not the original, you might say. It is a 1984 reprint, fourth publishing, but it is the original 1981 Andrew Skilleter cover painting. And it's a gorgeous, gorgeous painting. It's got the TARDIS in color in Totter's yard. And you have to give massive respect because this is a color painting of a black and white photo. And then, of course, it has the nifty flash across the bottom, uh, first publication of the very first Doctor Who story. You are holding up what appears to be a reprint cover that has William Hartnell regenerating into Carol Ann Ford in mid-cover? Yeah, I've got the 1990 reprint. So it's got the uh, the McCoy-era logo at the top, uh, which is uh, which is one of my favorites because that was where I came into the series. So And then... Yeah, the, the painting is of, uh, as you say, it's uh, it's William Hartnell and Caroline Ford. But they're sort of merged together so that they share one eye in the middle. I kind of think that maybe that was on the video cover as well. I can't quite remember. Um, but yeah, and then the uh, the TARDIS in the foreground um, in the uh, in the sort of place where it uh, on the plane where it materializes in the story. I'm not sure who did the artwork for that. I was just having a quick look, but I couldn't see anywhere. That it tells you, but you've got a good eye for these things. My guess off the top of my head would be Alistair Pearson. So what you're holding up is a blue spine. So the blue mm-hmm. spines are targets with the original covers removed and these new blue spine covers rejacketed on. Yeah. The blue spines have a very big niche among Doctor Who target collectors, and I'll tell you why. This may be the first publication of the first Doctor Who story, but you would never know it from the cover because William Hartnell is nowhere in sight. And why, you ask, would you not have any of the series regulars on the cover of the very first book? Because the first Target book with the Neon Tube logo, this comes out right in the middle of JNT's era. And when mm-hmm. JNT was producer, he kept a pretty firm hold over the books. I've heard the story told in different ways over the years, but one explanation is that he didn't want to pay extra for the likenesses of the old time actors. And secondly, he didn't want old doctors on the cover of books when he was trying to market his new doctor. This comes Uh, out just months before Peter Davison's debut. mm -hmm. So even though the release of the book is tied to the five faces of doctor who season, he didn't want, or JNT did not want old doctors on the cover. So you have the TARDIS and Totter's Yard. You do not have the Doctor. You do not have Susan. You do not have Ian or Barbara on the cover. The Blue Spines largely come out after the show is off the air. And the great thing about the Blue Spines is you have the proper Doctor on the cover. So now you can get Tomb of the Cybermen with Patrick Troughton on the cover. You can get Unearthly Child with William Hartnell and Carol Ann Ford having their faces merged together on the cover. Mm -hmm. It's an odd painting, but at least it shows you what era you're in, whereas as much as I love the Skilleter painting, it does not have the Doctor in it. So, yeah. uh, you know, six of one, half a dozen of the other. I don't ha- I don't collect the blue spines, but I can understand why people do. I just don't have the extra space to have multiple copies of each book. Yeah, I've, I've just got a sort of a hodgepodge with a few blue spines and a, and a few of the original ones. Uh, the, the other thing that really... Uh, dates this this book or, or sort of uh, kind of uh, you know sort of places it in a moment in time is at the bottom of the blurb 
Uh, it says Doctor Who and Unearthly Child is available as a BBC video and will be broadcast on BSB television during 1990. So it very much places it in a, in a specific time uh, in the life of Doctor Who when uh, UK Gold, which is a channel that used to be on satellite television over here, used to show Doctor Who stories uh, during the week and then we'd get an omnibus on a Sunday morning. Uh, made me desperately want to get Sky. Uh, is B Sky B or British Sky Broadcasting? And then I think, uh, I don't quite know the ins and outs of it, uh, but it was just eventually shortened to Sky because it was... Uh, I think probably because it's it's catchier, but I think it's also something to do with uh, it's all kind of owned by the Murdochs, or it was, and uh, they maybe owned some of it. I can't quite remember what the, what the details are, but yeah, it's basically just called Sky now. So our sort of satellite TV service is all uh, is all Sky. So <laughs> I know that you would not have been around for the five faces of Doctor Who season in 1981. So there's a particular generation of fan. And mm -hmm. I'll mention this again later in the program. There's a particular generation of Doctor Who fans for whom the five faces of Doctor Who season is foundational in their fandom. It's the first time that you would get to see these classic Doctors. It was Unearthly Child, Crotons, Three Doctors, Carnival of Monsters, stuff you would never see anywhere else. Now, in 1981, some of those stories had already been rebroadcast in the States, the Pertwee ones, but not the Hartnell or the Trout, and those didn't come here until 1985. So, from your point of view, you come in during the McCoy era. When did you become aware, and I've been doing a lot of talking so far, so I'll turn it over to you with this question. When did you become aware of Unearthly Child as Doctor Who's first story? When did you first see the TV episodes? When did you first read the novelization? And as a McCoy-era fan, what was your reaction to the old stuff from the 1960s? So I think uh, basically between seasons 25 and 26, when I first saw Doctor that was when I, re I discovered the Target books and started devouring them in just any kind of random order. So I would imagine probably would have read An Unearthly Child around then. First time I would have seen William Hartnell was, um, albeit briefly, was the second VHS of Doctor that I ever bought was the Five Doctors. So I saw him very briefly at the beginning of that in the sort of pre-title sequence, isn't he? There's the clip from the Dalek invasion of Earth, and then it would have been I probably would have bought the VHS of an Unearthly Child. That was probably the first time I got to see it because because uh, we didn't have Sky or B Sky B at home when I was growing up. Uh, but I had an auntie who would occasionally. Uh, record one of the omnibuses for me but I, I just you know it was, it was very hit and miss as well um that I, they got to see many of those so I'm sure I would have bought the story I can't quite re I've definitely had it on VHS I can't remember really my reaction to it or anything like that unfortunately I can I think I can remember getting the book more um but to answer the question about when I knew it was the first story I think that would have been when I got the Jean-Marc L'Officer Program guide, uh, the 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 original sort of uh, it was in two volumes in hardback, and it had the first five doctors on the cover. So it only went up to the Davison era, and at school I got like second place in a short story writing competition, and they took us to this uh, book warehouse and uh, with an, a, like a twenty pound or something like that book token was the prize, and they and uh, we just said you know kind of go and go and choose some books so i immediately started looking for doctor who books 
Um, and this was probably about 1990 or 1991. And I found these two hardback uh, program guides and I picked them up. I remember my teacher saying to me, are you sure you want those? Are you really going to be interested in Doctor Who in, in a few years' time? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I said, I'm pretty sure I will be, yeah. And, and obviously, time has, uh, time has proven that right. And I've still got those two books on the shelf behind me as well. So uh, yeah, they've, uh, I'm sure I poured over those and, and, and read the synopses of the stories that I hadn't, I hadn't seen yet. There is nothing like a teacher whose sole raison d'etre in life is to crush your motivation and yeah. <laughs> belittle your interests and make sure that you take shame and disgrace in the things you love. Yeah. That is that yeah. is certainly one possible style of teaching and parenting. It's just not one that I happen to endorse, but, you know, to each their own. Yeah, definitely. But, yeah, kind of uh, bits of the book, re- um, it, it did remind uh, – I, I could remember reading it for the first time because I think that was probably – when I really became aware of like a chameleon circuit, or it's not named chameleon circuit at this stage, but uh, you know, the, the, when the doctor steps out the TARDIS uh, after they've, after their first journey and uh, both him and Susan are going, it hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. And I think, uh, yeah, that was probably something that kind of um, got me thinking about that, about, you know, the TARDIS uh, chameleon circuit and, and what it could potentially change to in, uh, in different scenarios. And the uh, the doctor lighting his pipe and getting hit over the head and that kind of thing. That I think I remember the pros of that maybe more than the the TV episode. You had sent me a photo during the week over our long running IM chat. It is you on the couch, or as you would say in the UK, it's you on the sofa with two dogs, mm-hmm. and you're watching the opening scenes. I believe the actor was Reg Cranfield, uh, the actor who played the police officer in the opening moments. You are on the couch, enraptured by the opening scenes of the show. Your dogs are facing in the wrong direction and completely, completely bored by proceedings. Yeah, they uh, they they weren't interested at all. Yeah, my wife just—I didn't know she was doing it. She took a little snap because it was nice for the dogs were, were kind of snuggled uh, snuggled into, into me in the sofa. I was really relaxed just watching Doctor Who. Uh, it's pretty um, pretty much my happy place. <laughs> um, so yeah, she, uh, she took, took kind of a wide angle view so she could see the TV and everything like that. Um, but yeah, the, uh, the the dogs were not interested at all, unfortunately. So like setting that, uh, aside your uh, dogs of questionable TV taste, what was your reaction to watching Unearthly Child this week? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I loved it. Um, I've, I've obviously watched it uh, watched it a number of times. The, the first episode is, is just sort of TV gold, isn't it? It's, it's sort of unbelievably good. It's, it's the perfect way to start the series. Um, and, and yeah, Doing this book because I've been I've, for years I've been meaning to do as you did during lockdown a sort of a pilgrimage or watch through all the stories and then I thought oh, I should really do it I've probably been meaning to do it since the fiftieth and never got around to it so I've been thinking for the sixtieth I should do a watch through and then being invited onto Doctor Who Literature to talk about an Earthly Child I thought well that's going to jump start the project I'll, I'll watch an Earthly Child this week and then I'll go on to the Daleks and and carry on and see how far. I get before before the 60th. So, uh, yeah, my, my intention is to hit the Daleks at the weekend. See, this is exactly what happened to me. I was, I had always heard about people who did the pilgrimage, 
and Graham Burke from Reality Bomb, who's been on this show a couple of times and will be on again in the future. He, in his old fanzine, Enlightenment, from the Canadian Doctor Who Information Network, was always talking up the pilgrimage, the pilgrimage. So, check this. In late 2012, living in New York as I do, we have what used to be called the Museum of Television and Radio. It's now called the Paley Center, named for William Paley, who was a TV pioneer um, in the mid-20th century. Uh, The Paley Center has a lot of archival TV going all the way back to the 1950s. They have kinescopes, very rare, of live broadcasts, and they have rotating exhibits. One of the programming chiefs at the Paley Center at the time was a big Doctor Who fan, so when the new series was just hitting its peak in America, and the new series was white hot here between 2011 and 2014, roughly overlapping the Matt Smith era, Paley Center did a lot of screenings. They would fill an auditorium with Doctor Who fans, and they would screen DVDs of the classic series. So in late 2012, they did a DVD screening of Unearthly Child, the very first episode, and they had Waris Hussein on site for an interview and live commentary. So I was one of the oldest people in the room, a lot of younger fans coming to check out the origin of what was then their favorite new show. So getting to see Waris Hussein talk about this episode live was an incredible experience, and I did a blog post about it on my old Doctor Who novels and WordPress blog, and that inspired me to just kick off the whole pilgrimage. About a month later, Paley Center screens all four episodes, including the Caveman three-parter on the DVD. So I took my I took my wife to that and you know she is not really a Doctor Who fan but she heard all these quotes that I've been saying over and over again for years that she didn't realize were Doctor Who quotes. So you can <laughs> you can see the penny drop for her and figure out why I say all these things. Well, this is where they come from. So I started my pilgrimage and the mistake that I made and don't do what Jason did. In 2013, I was only watching one 25-minute episode a night. So by mid-May, I'd only gotten as far as season two, and then I stopped for a while, and then I resumed late in the year. And by the time Day of the Doctor aired, I was still only up probably to about season three of the classic series. When I did my 2020 pandemic pilgrimage, I started in October because I made the mistake of binge-watching two full runs of really bad, dated American sitcoms first. So I watched all seven seasons of Growing Pains, which is the sitcom that made Kirk Cameron famous before Kirk Cameron decided to make himself infamous. And then I watched all six seasons of Mr. Ed, the infamous early 60s sitcom about the talking horse, which is actually very funny up until a point, but then by the last couple of seasons when they're recycling themselves i just i got really 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 bored so all right let me just start doctor who now i said this is october 2020 i put a post up on my at that point very rarely used uh, twitter doctor who novels and i said i'm starting the pilgrimage right now and that post actually took off and people you know all of a sudden appreciated this post even though most of what i posted before Never got any traction. So that kept me going. I was watching two episodes a night. So I did Unearthly Child and Cave of Skulls, October 26, 2020. And that, you know, that's really where this thing took off. That gave me, that gave me, you know, I'm not going to say following on Twitter because it's a pretentious word. 
it got me interacting with enough people that number one, I became a much mm-hmm. larger presence on your show, started guest hosting, and that got me on other podcasts, and that gave me the impetus to start this show, which launched in late 2021, about a year into the pilgrimage. Probably one of the most exciting things I've ever done in fandom. Number one, because it got this show going. Without that pilgrimage, you might not have the chain of events that leads to Doctor Who literature, and you and I talking right mm-hmm. now. More importantly, the classic series is just amazing, and at any given point, any episode out of the classic series could be my favorite. You know, that warm glow might not last very long. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, part one of of uh, Android Invasion is actually good, and then the rest of it kind of falls apart. But I just really loved almost every episode as I was watching it, and I would do one short Twitter thread for every episode that I watched. And I got through the entire classic series in about... 13 months and I took some time off here and there you know if I was waiting for uh, 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 the blu-ray of season eight to come out I'd like wait a week and watch something else short term I had to wait a little bit for the fury from the deep dvd to come out so I could watch that as mm-hmm. part of my pilgrimage rather than telesnaps but I got through the whole series in 13 months and then the new series was a much less enjoyable part of the pilgrimage I think the new series has dated much more badly than the classic series that's a longer right. conversation so I'm not going to get into that now but I finished just in time, more by accident than by design. I finished the Jodie Whittaker era the night before Power of the Doctor aired. And now, of course, I've met Jodie, I've met Chris Chibnall, and I have a copy of the Power of the Doctor script autographed by both of them. Although what's interesting is it's an older version of the script, so it ends on a cliffhanger. This is before they knew about David Tennant coming back. So the, the script ends with the Doctor regenerating, and you don't see who she regenerates into. Right, that's interesting, yeah. So for you, you're going to have to go faster than I did in order to have a chance of finishing the entire series by the time of the 60th anniversary special dropping, but there's still time to do it if you're determined and dedicated and you go at a faster pace uh, than I did. But it's such a rewarding experience. And I have to say, though, I'll, I'll tell you this. You take a series like Better Call Saul, my favorite American show of recent vintage. Mm. The first season is actually kind of weak, and it takes a while to pick up. Now, me, here I am in 2020, coming after two complete rewatches of two pretty, you know, not very good American sitcoms. If I had started off and the first season of Doctor Who was terrible, that pilgrimage might not have lasted very long. But the first 25 minutes of Unearthly even though it's done in a studio the size of a shoebox, even though it's only four actors and a couple of extras, it is so transcendently good between Waris Hussein's direction and the performances and the dialogue, which is so fast and so crackling. And we'll talk about the caveman story in a little bit, but because that's so good and because the Daleks is so good and because every other story in broadcast season one up through the reign of terror has a lot to recommend it. My pilgrimage got off to a flying start. And the only time that I really flagged and lost faith was during the the later Patrick Troughton era and uh, the early Graham Williams era. And then most of the Colin Baker era, which through no fault of Colin Baker's is not my favorite era of the show. Most of the classic series is golden and the rewatch could not have been more fun, but because it starts off so strong, that's probably why I got as far as I did. Imagine if the very first episode that Doctor Who made was the Dominators. Hello, Fraser. Mm. 
or Time Flight or <laughs> Android Invasion or Twin Dilemma. The fact that the first episode is so good is what makes the pilgrimage worthwhile. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's done perfectly that you you open with Ian and Barbara and it's a very recognizable setting and everything like that. And then it's the uh, you know, the, the science fiction elements are introduced so so gradually. Um the other or the, the mystery of Susan is introduced very gradually and then why does she live in a junkyard and then the there's the police box and oh it's it's alive, you know, and and the uh it's 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 kind of humming and things. And then suddenly, bang, you're inside the TARDIS and it's yeah, it's absolutely amazing. Just, you know, what it must have been to watch that on broadcast knowing nothing about it. Um yeah, must have been such a memorable viewing experience. Definitely. Uh just something when you mentioned the the policeman, um that was on screen and the, the photo that uh, of me watching it reminded me, I don't know if you've heard this, there's a big Finnish um, play called The Last Day at Work. And this is, a, it's one you can, anyone can download for free from Big Finish because it's one of the um, the competitions that they run annually for, for sort of new writers uh, in memorial of Paul Sprague. Uh, and that's a very good story about the policeman who is the first character that you ever see in Doctor Who. So I'd uh, I'd recommend that to anyone who hasn't heard it. Who is the author of that Big Finish audio play? That is Harry Draper. Don't know of him. Obviously, we had a lot of Big Finish writers at Galley 1 last week. And the Big Finish writers could not be more personable. They could not be more friendly. They could not be accessible. You have to pick your spots in fandom. And I don't consider myself a Big Finish guy. I have disposable income, but I could not invest it all in Big Finish. Plus, no. with my podcast backlog being already two months long, I don't feature adding to that with the thousands of audio plays that Big Finish yeah. puts out. I will say that when Big Finish is at its best, very little is better. So I am immediately on my Big Finish app right now looking for that story. And... Of course, nothing is less exciting than listening to somebody uh, <laughs> look up things on their phone. So I'll turn it back over to you <laughs> while I look this up. So let's talk then. We've talked about how great part one is. Talk to me about how Terrence Dix handles this material in the first three chapters of the novelization. I've already written my essay. I'll be mm -hmm. recording it later. It'll play after this, so I'm not going to give away my thoughts, but I want to hear from your perspective as a longtime novelizations reader. How do those first three chapters compare to what we get on television? I think they're, they're mostly very close. I think it's a very, very um, faithful adaptation generally. It is interesting the way that he changes it, and I think one of the, one of the most striking ways that I noticed this time was the scene where Ian tries to operate the console to open the door. And on TV, see the doctor surreptitiously uh, activate a control. And then Susan shouts, don't touch it, it's live. It's like he's electrified the console. And then um, Ian uh, gets an electric shock from it. Whereas it's changed in the book... See, to, uh, this is written obviously in the eighties when you know we we know the Doctor is a heroic character, and I think probably most people come into the book know he's is um, is a heroic character. So to, almost to soften that, they introduce the idea that this one specific control is broken uh, 
And what the doctor does surreptitiously on the console is to deactivate um, or immobilize, I think is the word that they use, so that none of the controls will work for Ian. But he's just unfortunate enough to touch the one that is damaged and is live. So Susan still issues the same warning, but it isn't that the doctor has deliberately electrocuted. The doctor has locked him out of the controls, uh, and he has he has inadvertently touched the um, the broken one. We see if, if from the eighties, even there's there's bits now that that, that would make you wince. Um, obviously, the uh, the name that they use for for Native Americans isn't one that um, that would be used anymore, uh, and one that I thought was um, the sexist one as well, which. Um, is uh terence dix's description of of barbara is uh says that she has a face that would have been even prettier without its <laughs> habitual expression of rather mild disapproval which obviously that uh, uh you know that horrible um kind of sexist idea that oh you know you'd be prettier if you smiled a bit more sort of thing um so yeah i, I, <laughs> I sort of cringed um uh, that somewhat I can promise you that I do explore that in my audio essay coming up next. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I'm not defending Terence's choice. I will say that the rather dated expression to refer to Native Americans comes from the original script. It is not something that Terence wrote mm -hmm. himself. He's just transcribing. When a writer went over the line like Robert Holmes, he would sometimes change and soften up the dialogue, most notably in the novelizations of Web of Fear and Talons of Wang Chiang. He didn't soften this up, but he's, he's again he's using somebody else's words. I don't blame him for that. And I'll give an I'll give a, I'll give an excuse for the barber thing on the other half of the program. I think there's a mm -hmm. reason why he's setting her up as a formidable figure, and that'll make sense later. So again, it yeah. sounds very bad today, but I don't think in 1981 he was coming from a bad place. No, and I would say the Native American um, thing as well was used in the comic strip in the 90s as well with the Eighth Doctor. Um, so I don't think uh, probably in the 80s, you know, still being used kind of more than 10 years later was probably the awareness, uh, you know, was, was maybe not there in the 80s by that point. Um, I did like as well that, um, I can't remember if this is in the original story or not, when um, the uh, when he realized basically that the... Um, the, the TARDIS is real, have, Ian having been very, very sceptical um, early on. And Barbara says uh, to Ian, you're very quiet. And he says, humbled is the word. I was wrong. Um, and I like that because the correct use of the word humbled, not in the way that people use it now, which just means a sort of a mixture of sort of um, pride and um, sort of thankfulness. So uh, I think that's uh, that's a good thing. Yeah, Terence changes some of the dialogue. And I'll explore that more on the other half of the show. He adds a couple of subtle lines here and there to soften up or predict certain future moments because he's writing, obviously, with full awareness of what Doctor Who is going to be. Whereas mm -hmm. when Anthony Coburn wrote the script, he had no idea what Doctor Who was going to be. Terrence has more knowledge of what's out there. So Terrence adds some foreshadowing to the dialogue. Um so, again, I think we're both in agreement. The television episode, the first 25 minutes, is astounding. The book really does it justice, apart from some dated expressions that if you mm. were to write a new version of the novelization, and, of course, there is one, but we'll probably never see it, 
if you were yeah. to write a new version, a, a, new, a new adaptation or a new interpretation of Unearthly Child, you would not have those lines about Barbara. You wouldn't have the line about Native Americans being referred to in what seems rather dated and judgmental language. But for what it is, coming from 1981, I think this is Terrence absolutely having fun at his at his creative peak. So let's mm-hmm. talk then. And this is the part of Doctor Who that doesn't really get, I think, enough credit. Let's talk about the three-part historical, which is part and parcel of this story. It's not just Unearthly Child, 25 Minutes in a Junkyard. It is a four-part serial where the travelers go back in time and deal with the invention of technology. So the same way that the TARDIS is alien technology to Ian and Barbara, they go back in time and they help introduce the secret of fire to cavemen, and they learn how to function as a team. And, of course, it's Doctor Who's first historical the mm-hmm. caveman story. And it's the kind of story that Doctor Who never, ever told again. Not counting Time Flight, which is nominally set in the past. This is the only time that Doctor Who has gone this far back into prehistory and stayed there on a sustained basis. So the three-part story is unique. I think the three-part story is ridiculously underrated. And mm-hmm. I think it's much better than the 1990 era when I came of age in fandom collective wisdom would have you believe what did you think of the caveman material and what did you think of the way Terrence adapted it in the book yeah I think again it's 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 very faithful to 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 what happens um I think it makes things clearer um like Cal's relationship to the rest of the tribe um, in terms of where he came from, although I mean they're obviously very, uh, very well drawn characters on the TV as well. They, I mean they've got quite simple motivations, but you can, you can even easily differentiate them, even though they're all sort of hairy cavemen and everything like that. Um, so yeah, I think it just just um, something occurred to me then. Um, do they ever say that this is Earth in the story? <laughs> That's a really good point. Um... You have watched the TV episodes more recently than I have. Yeah. I think it's implied. I think it's implied as well. And one of the alternative titles is 100,000 BC, isn't it? Which um, which would suggest that, that it is. But there's never said anywhere. So it could be, yeah, so it could be prehistoric, um, uh, I suppose, any, uh, Argolis or any, <laughs> I don't know why that popped in my head, but <laughs> any humanoid planet. It could be the planet Zog. It could be Tara, couldn't it? it? Could be, could be prehistoric Tara. It could or, be um... the planet Scaro in prehistory. It could be that yes. you know <laughs> Zah and his tribe are the are are the, are the Dals, and it could be that Cal is the last remaining Thal. However, I think this story works better if you take it as read that mm-hmm. it does yeah. play, take place <laughs> in, in Earth's prehistory. Yeah, I think yeah, we could be uh, yeah, could be. Um... Could be going off on it on too much of a tangent there. Oh, I've got a better idea. Here's my, here's my better idea, Mark. And I'm mm-hmm. only telling you this because we're friends. I think that this takes place on the planet Chloris. And I'll tell you why. Okay. When last we left Chloris, Arado is leaving and he's arriving at a peace treaty. However... Before the peace treaty is formed, he sends a neutron star to destroy the planet. In the original timeline, before the Doctor and Romana land on Chloris and save the day, 
that neutron star devastates Chloris and blasts them back to the Stone Age. One of the only survivors is Madame Corella, and she's living in the cave, very angry about how technology has destroyed her planet. And her mm-hmm. grandson, Zah, who we don't see in Creature from the Pit, but there's no reason to believe he's not there. As the planet is destroyed and they're blasted back to the Stone Age, she is the last survivor of the old regime because they're played by the same actress. So if you (laughs) figure that old mother, Zah's grandmother, is Madame Corella, the same person she plays in Creature from the Pit, then all of a sudden it makes a lot more sense. So maybe we're on the planet Chloris in in, in their post-apocalyptic blasted back to the Stone Age era. (laughs) So there you go. I think we've solved the mystery that has puzzled fandom for uh, 59 years. (laughs) They're not on Earth. It was Chloris the whole time. (laughs) I've updated my headcanon, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) My daughter tells me that headcanon is supposed to be a verb, not a noun. So you have to rephrase that sentence. Okay. Uh, so I've I've headcanoned that uh, that explanation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I thought you, the other thing that was interesting, and you've probably picked up on this as well. Obviously, is the, uh, the they changed the ending so that Susan doesn't um, put one of the skulls on top of a torch, um, and then say, "Oh, look, it looks like it's alive." She just sort of like a, I think a skull rolls into the fire, doesn't it? Um, which I thought was just sort of an odd thing to change, but uh, I suppose, uh, yeah, I suppose it, it, if Susan was going to put it onto a torch, it would make sense that she had, she had a reason to do that, to say, oh, look, we can uh, we can scare the, uh, the savages this way or something. So you mean the way that Terence is rewriting it, he gives Susan's agency away. Yeah, yeah. That she, I think she still spots the the effect of the flames, um, kind of inside the the skull. But it's just because the skull gets kind of knocked into the fire. She doesn't she doesn't place it atop a torch and and wave it around, kind of thing, like she does on the TV story. So you're referring to the top of page one twenty one, and I'm going to do a dramatic reading on the spot. The doctor said moodily, "Fire." Fire is still the answer somehow. I'm sure of it. They revere it. If only we could use it to frighten them in some way. He kicked moodily at a skull at his feet. It rolled into the fire, sat there, grinning at him. Look at that skull, Grandfather, said Susan fearfully. It looks almost alive. Inside the empty eye sockets of the skull, little flames flickered like glaring eyes. Ian looked at the skull and then jumped to his feet. Not alive, Susan. Dead. So, I think I see what Terence is going for there. This is making the Doctor central to the action. It's the Doctor who mm. intentionally kicks the skull into the fire in a fit of pique. And then through the cooperation of all of them as a team, they figure out this ruse to manage to escape. Maybe that's yeah. why Terence did that. It's the end of the book. He wants to give the Doctor a little more central stage. As the show was scripted, the Doctor was an antagonist and a background figure. Obviously, it evolved. When Terence is writing, that is no longer the case. So maybe he made this change to give the Doctor more control over the narrative. Now, I had a golden opportunity. As you can see, 
my copy of the book is autographed by Terrence Dix. Ah. When I met him in November 2014 and got him to sign this for me, I should have asked him <laughs> about that change. Yeah. But at the time, <laughs> I don't think I was aware of the change, so I missed that opportunity. Uh. You can also see that I wrote the date. This is one of the few targets where I wrote the date of the first time that I watched the story. So uh. I wrote 9 slash 7 slash 85. That is not July 9th. That's the American short, and that is September 7th. Also, Rosh Hashanah. So it was airing as an omnibus on the, the New Jersey network. And I set the VCR to record. And we got home from Shul just in time for me to watch the last 10 minutes of part four. And then I immediately rebound the tape back and watched the whole thing for the first time. So two happy memories on the title page. Uh, when I first saw this story and Terrence Dix's autograph. Ah, oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah, and, and like you say, it's the doctor planting that idea, saying oh, fire is the key to it, isn't it? So because they because they worship fire, so that's kind of planting the seeds for Ian in a way that yeah, it's not really happening in the in the TV story. Yeah, I think the other thing I was I was interested because I couldn't remember from last time I read it was whether writing it from the eighties, Terence Sticks sort of referred to the doctor as a time lord or anything like that. You know, sometimes the writers instead of writing, uh, you know the doctor said all the time they might say something like you know said the time lord or something like that so it's interesting to see whether that terminology was kind of retconned into a story from before it was coined but uh but there isn't anything like that and obviously gallifrey isn't mentioned or anything which uh which you thought might you know could could be uh put in there from from his viewpoint of the 80s it's interesting because one of the reasons why i chose to do this podcast in publication order number one tony witt is already doing that with the doctor who target book club podcast on which i was a guest before i pitched this show and we're now part of the same network direction point so our shows are very much companions to one another but when you go in story order as he's doing you run into the problem of writers in the 80s giving the game away before you get to the war game. So, for example, John Peel is a friend. John Peel has been on this show. John Peel will hopefully be on the show again. But when you read the prologue to the 1994 novelization of Power of the Daleks, it mm. ties all of Doctor Who into a coherent continuity in the prologue, which bridges Tenth Planet with Power of the Daleks. Mm -hmm. The problem is when you're reading it in story order, he's giving the game away and he's giving all these spoilers for uh, the war games and the unit era and everything to come. So that works better for me if you're reading in publication order where it comes as one of the very last books in the line. I think mm -hmm. stuff like that doesn't work well if you're reading the novelizations in story order. So that's one argument in favor of publication order as I'm doing it. Now, at this point, it's 1981. The War Games book came out two years earlier. We already know about Time Lords. But when you're writing the very, very, very first story, as Terrence is doing, it doesn't make a lot of sense to completely spoil the game. So he gives some teases as to what's coming, but he never gives the full game away. No, I think it's nice that, yeah, they, they, they've kept it like that as well. And... Um... And the law, you say, he softened maybe some of the edges of, of the Doctor's character and he, he doesn't make him deliberately electrocute Ian or anything. There is still the, you know, the inherent, um, you know, kind of fear that he has 
that letting Ian and Barbara go will uh, that they that they will reveal his existence and 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 his frailty as well in terms of when they're trying to escape. You know that that's all still in there as well. He hasn't, you know, made him more more heroic or stronger than uh, than he than he appeared in that story. It's still very largely based on the TV scripts, minus the occasional mm. fix or softening up or, or or patching. So he's he's writing basically what Anthony Coburn gave us in 1963. So Ian is still very much the star of the story. But this is a doctor who's more in line with the doctor that we know and love rather than the out-and-out antagonist. Now, there is the moment on television where it's implied the doctor wants to bash Zaz's skull in so they can <laughs> escape. That was litigated a lot on Records Doctor Who in the early 90s. I'm just going to say that bashing people over the head was the William Hartnell Doctor's modus operandi for the first two full seasons of the show. This is not <laughs> the only story where he is violent. Uh, most notably, the Romans where it turns out he took wrestling lessons with the mountain mauler of Montana, the reign of terror, where he bashes somebody over the head with a shovel and knocks him unconscious and probably gives permanent brain damage. So the William Hartnell doctor being violent is certainly not just confined to this story. And Terrence also does get in an interesting line at the end of chapter two, when they fall into the TARDIS. Despite his age, the old man was amazingly strong. Now, Hartnell is 55, not much older than I am now, younger than some of my guests on the show, but he was playing older. But Terrence mm. gives him this steely determination and strength. So it's almost like the opposite of Peter Davison. This doctor in Terrence's eyes is the young man in the old man's body as opposed to the old man in the young man's body. Yeah. And and when uh, he, I really like the way he describes how he sort of Get, gets the attention of the cavemen when he reveals that Cal is the murderer of the old mother, um, and it, it talks about I can't quite remember the terminology, but you know, so if he how he casts a spell over them, and suddenly they, you know, they having gone from fearing and mistrusting him, they're suddenly really listening to him, and um, he's he, the way he draws Cal out to reveal his knife, which has got the blood on it, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I think Terrence Sticks really makes the most of that moment, like the Doctor's ingenuity and charisma and, and that kind of thing is, uh, is, is a really good description. I think that's the moment when Doctor Who is ruined forever because they went woke. They went political. <laughs> if, if you're just talking about the police box in a junkyard and cavemen running around grunting, that's what Doctor Who is. The mm -hmm. moment that the doctor becomes this liberal force who is helping the tribe depose an autocratic murderous leader, that's Doctor Who going woke, and I just won't stand for it. So as, as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> Doctor Who dies in episode four, The Fire Maker. That's just the end of the show, and it never mm -hmm. has any credibility ever again. Yeah. Naturally, I'm being completely facetious and quite to the opposite. <laughs> People who complain about Doctor Who getting political now, Doctor Who got political in its very first story. So this is what the show is. The show has always been radical. So I love yeah. that you're getting this in the novelization of the very <laughs> first story, for sure. When when Zah becomes leader of the tribe instead of Cal, that's the, we call that the big steal. That's the uh, so it was a stolen election. That was, uh... <laughs> <laughs> justice for Cal. Justice for Cal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, we're almost at the point of the show where I'm going to be challenging you to a game, but I love talking about the first episode. So what else can you say about Unearthly Child on TV, Unearthly Child the book, uh, the Unseen Pilot episode, uh, the Caveman serial? What else can we say about this? I watched the uh, yeah I watched the pilot again um, as part of this. I watched that first and then watched the the broadcast first episode. Yeah, and it's it's really remarkable how much more polished it is. The performances are, are that bit better. The the direction, the 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 character of the Doctor. You know when he sort of gives the um, you know haven't you ever wondered what it'd be like to be wanderers in the in the fourth dimension and that kind of thing. And then the you know if you could. Um, if you could hear the cries of the alien birds and see them wheeling in the sky, those those really are beautifully written lines, and 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 Hartnell really seems to deliver them better in the in the finished product. And also, they changed the Doctor's provenance from the 49th century to another time, yes. another world. So by going from the specific to the general, it creates this mystery of who he is, which doesn't get answered for another six calendar years until the War Games comes out. So again, Sidney Newman, not only did he come up with the core ideas for what's Doctor Who, but his choice to reshoot that pilot episode is really what saves the day. If that pilot episode is aired as is, number one, it was unairable because of the production gaps. But if they don't have the chance to rewrite the script and change those things on the fly, you know, none of us are going to be sitting here 59 years later talking about a series that's based on the actual unseen pilot. Yeah. Sydney New, man. <laughs> and I will give a shout out to Graham Burke's book, Head of Drama, which is Sydney Newman's autobiography with a very long production note by Graham at the back, putting everything in context and going to the BBC archives and doing the research. So can't say enough good things about Sydney Newman, but can you say enough good things about 20 Questions? I am one Doctor Who story taken from the randomizer.net. It could be any story between 1963 and 2022. Are you going to be able to guess who I am in just 20 questions? I will do my best. So, uh, well, I'm going to stick with my tactic of, of just having a uh, just a wild stab in the dark right out of the gate because if I if I'm ever correct it will be uh, I'll be unbeatable. Uh, so I'm going to say, are you Image of the Fendal? See, that's interesting, man. Because the last time you were here, I think you had your opener as the Visitation. Mm-hmm. Now you've changed your opener. If you use the same opener every time, you're more likely to eventually get it. Whereas if you change your opener, uh, I don't know. So anyway, to make a long story short, no, I am not Image of the Fendal. Okay. Then I will, I will, I will go the long way around, as uh, <laughs> as uh, as the doctor might say. Uh, is it twentieth century or twenty first century Doctor Who? You've got to give me a yes or no question. Sorry, sorry. Is it 20th century Doctor Who? Yes, it is 20th century Doctor Who. See, last week, it was a Jodie story. And this week, I actually drew a Jodie story again. But it was a Jodie story that has already been featured in 20 questions on this program. So I hit the randomizer again 
And this is a, I am a 20th century story now. So question three. Is it in black and white? Yes, I am in black and white now. You've narrowed it down to a six-season run. This is question mm-hmm. four. If you get it in the next two, you will break Conrad's record, which I don't want anyone to do, so give <laughs> Conrad a break. It's <laughs> what is your question four? Uh, is it a first Doctor story? I am a first Doctor story. Now, I think that's 29 serials. You have a 1 in 29 shot of getting it <laughs> right now and becoming the all-time reigning record holder on Doctor Who Literature 20 Questions. Or wow. you can go the long way around. The problem is there are more stories to name than questions mm-hmm. you have left. So you've got to be careful or you might be the first loser of 20 questions on my show. <laughs> but I, I feel like I've got to gamble because... <laughs> Because like, because this this could be my shot at, um, at immortality. Well, I'm not going to guess on an earthly child because I don't think, uh, given that we're talking about that story, I don't know. I kind of feel like you would have hit the randomizer again because it would be too too on the nose. So I'm going to uh, guess. Now Mark is looking back at his shelf where he has the complete <laughs> making of Doctor Who hardback collection plus the novelizations. He's turning around for inspiration. He's trying to get an idea from the ether. He's craning his I'm neck. Guess the savages. Ooh, question five. Am I the savages? Regrettably, lamentably, I am not the savages. So now the uh, best you can do okay. is tie Conrad and with an asterisk, Pete Lambert, who both got it in six. Uh, but I'm not, I'm not just going to make another guess. I, I, I need to <laughs> I need to narrow it down a bit further. Okay, so um, is Susan in the story? No, I am not a story featuring Susan. So now we're on to question seven. Now, when you challenged me to twenty questions, I got it in I think at eight. So did let's see if you can beat feel, the old man. To <laughs> feel like having two two guesses is uh, is costing me that. <laughs> I've got I've got buyer's remorse now about do about doing that. Um, does it feature Vicky? Yes, I do feature Vicky, and now you're on question eight. Vicky was in however many stories were in the season two production block. Plus the one episode made as part of season three that she came back for. So it's somewhere in the run from the rescue through Galaxy 4, not counting Mission to the Unknown, in which she does not appear. So question eight, I think we're up to. Are Ian and Barbara in it as well? No, I am not an Ian and Barbara story. So now I'm question nine, and now you've narrowed it. Now you're guaranteed to win because there's only a handful yeah. of Vicky stories without Ian and Barbara. So we are not getting our first loser on Doctor so, Literature 20 questions. Not this week. Is it Galaxy 4? I am not Galaxy 4. I am not even the animated reconstruction <laughs> of Galaxy 4. <laughs> Although I will uh, tell you that there was somebody at Gallifrey 1 last week who cosplayed as MAGA, and it was just an amazing, amazing costume. There are so many fantastic. Doctor Who costumes you can pick, so to go as MAGA from Galaxy 4, I salute 
anybody who does a good Cardinal era cosplay. So yeah, this is a Galaxy a 4 one. house, but this week I am not Galaxy 4. Is it the Time Meddler? Yes, I am, in fact, ah. the Time Meddler, which I love to pieces. That <laughs> novelization too, yeah. is not coming up for quite a ways on the show, but rest assured, you will be hearing very good things about the Time Meddler when the time is right. I, d- I love that story. Yeah, it's one of my favorite Hartnells. So what was that? Was that nine? I think you got it in, in 11. 11? Oh, wow. That's, uh, that's not, not, it's not a res- It's respectable. To... It's middle of the pack. One day... I need... One day you'll do better. <laughs> I need to stop with the uh, with the with the random guesses. I think I need to be more methodical. Well, I think the first random guess, the opener, is a great idea because if you get it in one, it'll be the mm-hmm. all-time record. But yeah. too many random guesses takes away your choice. Yeah, that's it. Uh, I was I was tempted by uh, by that that shot at glory of getting it in four. That was <laughs> that was the problem there. <laughs> There's a reason why Conrad is Conrad, and the rest of us are not. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> so, Mark, what's coming up next for you in the podcast sphere? Um, I'm going to be doing a guest spot on Gallifrey's Most Wanted, um, where we talk about uh, Beep the Meep um, in the uh, Doctor Who comic stories uh, that that character appears in. Uh, because uh, potentially this character is going to be seen on screen later in the year. I think that's pretty pretty much confirmed. Actually, I think that's uh, don't think that's a spoiler for anybody. He's in the he's in the trailer. <laughs> uh, yes, there's somebody who very closely resembles him. Yeah, yeah you and uh, you and Ross have your comic shop strand on Gallifrey's Most mm-hmm. Wanted. Yeah, so that that's a lot of fun revisiting some of these Doctor Who comics which I haven't read for years and years. Um, but actually, one of one of them that we did do, which. Uh, to shout out both the episode of Gallifrey's Most Wanted and the comic itself, uh, which I'd strongly recommend, is called Hunters of the Burning Stone and came out for the 50th anniversary and is a sequel to An Unearthly Child. Really? Um, wow, I, don't, I was not yeah, aware of that. It's a great story. It features the 11th Doctor reuniting with Ian and Barbara. And uh, I won't say any more. It's just a fantastic story. So I strongly this, recommend This is it. a comic. Which publisher came out with that? This is the Doctor Who magazine, so it's written by the brilliant Scott Gray. Ah, all right. See, I'm not a DWM subscriber. I will occasionally pick up the odd issue at Forbidden Planet here in New York City, like when they had their Target issue with the uh, bonus Target book. But Mm -hmm. that comic I've missed. I I will put a link to that in the show notes if I can find a link somewhere online. You say it's called Hunters of the Burning Stone? Yeah, that's the story. And when uh, obviously every so often they they bring out the sort of trade paperbacks of uh, you know collect a few Doctor Who magazine stories, and that volume is also called Hunters of the Burning Stone uh, and features some of the. So that ran across six issues of DWM issues four fifty six through four sixty one. It's actually the tenth anniversary because the first issue ran in February twenty thirteen. So we are now in the first, the tenth anniversary. Uh, of that one yeah i remember it was around the 50th um so yeah that would be that'd be right yeah 2013 all right if there is a trade paperback of that your humble host is going to have to get a copy that just seems it's too a great good to be story true. yeah it's a terrific story and what else is coming up on trap one i have recently released uh, an episode which you were in that's where you 
and me and Pete and the great Jim Sangster, all good friends of this program, were talking about the novelization of Fires of Pompeii, a non-Doctor Who literature, Doctor Who literature episode. But what else is coming down the Trap One pipeline? Uh, so we'll be talking about some of the recent Eighth Doctor Big Finish stories uh, on an upcoming episode. They've just changed their format from the sort of four-story four box sets to uh to more standalone releases so the first two volumes of that we'll be talking about and i believe there's an episode coming up about season two about the season two collection and uh yeah i'm not sure what else is uh it's kind of slim pickings this year and then i imagine the back end of the year will be will be really really busy and then we've got their new target books in the summer which uh which should be cool that's right. I'll be on a couple of those. I am the moderator for the season two Blu-ray collection, but I need to wait for a couple of people to finish watching the discs. And I'm also still planning an episode about Jodie Whittaker's top 10 moments, but getting a panel together for that has not been the easiest thing in the world. So those are episodes that I have planned. Plus I have a couple of other surprises up my sleeve. So there'll be plenty of stuff. And also I believe that we're going to be doing an anniversary series on trap one, looking at the anniversary stories in this anniversary year. Yes, very excited about that. Yeah, so um, so our fellow co-host Cy Hart is uh, is is planning and hosting. Yeah, uh, a look back at all the anniversary stories that Doctor Who's ever done. So uh, yeah, I'm uh, looking forward to being involved in some of those as well. All right. Well, Mark, thank you as always for joining me. We will have you back on here again very soon to discuss a different novelization from a different Doctor. I think you'll be on within the next two months, and then we'll plot nice. out more appearances for you after that. Great. Thanks again and have a great night. Thank you very much. Doctor Who and An Unearthly Child, written by Terence Dix, televised as An Unearthly Child, teleplay by Anthony Coburn and C.E. Weber, Episode 1. Anthony Coburn, Episodes 2 through 4. Screen credit to Anthony Coburn. Televised in November and December 1963. Published in October 1981. Cover artist, Andrew Skilleter. First publication of the very first Doctor Who story. A strange girl who knows far more than she should about the past and the future. Two worried teachers whose curiosity leads them to a deserted junkyard an extraordinary police box, and a mysterious traveler known only as the Doctor. A fantastic journey through space and time, ending in a terrifying adventure at the dawn of history. Doctor Who and an unearthly child. The beginning of a legend. You know what else is incredible? The book itself. The cover art is what drew me in on that trip to the bookstore in February 1985, that amazing color painting of what previously only existed as a black and white photo, the TARDIS at Totter's Yard, and the flash across the bottom right cover, the first publication of the very first Doctor Who story, it says. A bit misleading, as this is the 1984, the fourth printing, rather than a true first edition, but I was a young fan, still only 11, desperate to learn about the show's history, so buying the very first adventure was a no-brainer. What's insane, what's insane is that if you listen back to any interview that I've done with a UK-based fan on this podcast, well, fan of a certain age anyway, 
a signal memory for those fans, and apologies to Mark, who's a bit younger and came to the show a bit later, is that repeat season, the five faces of Doctor Who, in the autumn of 1981, where those fans got to see Unearthly Child and the Caveman serial for the first time. Autumn 1981, watching an 18-year-old archival film in black and white, even as Doctor Who had recently finished its first JNT-produced season with the incredible Sid Sutton Starfield title sequence, the pulsating and energizing Peter Howell version of the theme tune, and the new neon logo, which debuts in the Target line this very month, October 1981. (laughs) Well, no, this very month is February 2023, but for the purpose of this podcast, yes, it's October 1981, And young Jason is over three years away from even hearing about Doctor Who. Young Jason instead is watching his very first World Series and rooting for baseball's New York Yankees. I didn't become a Mets fan until the following year. The Yankees blew a 2-0 lead in the series, as well as big leads in games 3 and 4, to fall to the hated Los Angeles Dodgers, well, the former Brooklyn Dodgers, now the Los Angeles Dodgers, hated by my Brooklyn boy father, in six games. I watched Game 3 on my old 13-inch childhood bedroom black-and-white TV and designed my own baseball board game using white loose-leaf paper. I would draw the baseball diamond, I would use my scissors to cut lines between the bases, and then I would insert paper fasteners to represent the base runners. My mother nearly bust a gut with paroxysms of laughter as I ran over to show her my creation, and she pointed out that I had the paper fasteners running the bases in the wrong direction from left to right, rather than right to left, because I'd been watching the game from the ABC broadcast centerfield camera and saw all the batters running to the left of the screen. Mostly Dodger batters, by the way, they won that game 5-4. to four. I never made that baseball mistake again. My mistake was not as big a mistake as Yankees manager Bob Lemon made in Game 6, pinch-hitting for starting pitcher Tommy John after just four innings, at which point the Yankees' bullpen, which had been awful that series, awful, turned a 1-1 tie into a 9-2 Dodgers route. Here is Howard Cosell on the call, alongside Keith Jackson and Jim Palmer. Bob Lemon. I wonder if he has any doubts within himself. He's only human as to whether or not he should have taken out Tommy John. But when you're second guest from here to heaven and back, you begin to feel, I guess, deep within you, you've got to do something. Maybe maybe even against your own impulse. But I think any manager watching Tommy John struggle through the first four innings. I mean, he's he made the right move. He sent up a guy like you said, Mercer, who has good track record against Hooten. It didn't turn out well, but I think it was well conceived. Over the mound. Bad bounce. Can't handle it. Lopes coming. 2-1 Dodgers. Here you see a good sinker. Just chops it up the middle. Hit right on the edge of the grass. And there you and saw the it kicked right. Yep. Hit right on where the grass and the dirt meet. And it just skipped right between them. Seems uncanny, doesn't it? The way their ground balls are going, part of this whole momentum they developed in Los Angeles. That's a little looper. Randolph going hard. Can't get it. Drops for a base hit. Say, turns and goes to third. 
It's agonizing, must be, for the Yankees. They haven't had a well-hit ball this inning. Not really. Guerrero hits it high, hits it deep to left center field. Mumphrey on his horse, going, can't get it. Say scores from third. Here comes Baker, rounding third. Guerrero heading for third. In with a triple, and the Dodgers have got the big inning going. Well, you have to feel for Bob Lemon. You simply have to. He hit that ball to the fence at 430 feet. And the Dodgers lead 4-1. to one. And I wonder what Tommy John is thinking. And apologies to my UK fans, but that is pretty much the best baseball broadcast team that you're going to hear. That's very, very good coverage of what was a tragic game for Yankees fans, but a great game for Dodgers fans. Now, I have a point about October 1981, and not just limited to playing a baseball clip from that year. All of you who are watching The Five Faces of Doctor Who, a long 18 years after Unearthly first aired, well, it is now almost springtime 2023. As we sit here today, we are exactly as far removed from Rose as all of y'all were from Unearthly was when this novelization came out. You're welcome. Turning to the book. Yes, I know, I know, you thought I'd never get there. I want to talk about Terrence Dix's operational art once again. Now, this is not just some novelization of a random season 17 adventure to which Terrence has no emotional attachment. This is him literally retelling Doctor Who's creation myth. And he goes big. Big. What's impressive is that he seems to enjoy the caveman material as much as those sizzling first three chapters, the ones retelling the first episode. The book's only 120 pages but is as richly written as something twice the length. We'll start with the first section of the book on page 9. A foggy winter's night in a London back street. The little road was empty and silent. A tall figure loomed up out of the fog, the helmeted, caped figure of a policeman patrolling his beat. He moved along the little street, trying shop doors, walked on past the shops to where the street ended in a high, blank wall. There were high wooden gates in the wall, with a smaller entry gate set into one of them. The policeman showed his torch onto the gates, holding the beam for a moment on a faded notice. I am Foreman, Scrap Merchant. There was another sign below the first, its lettering, bright and fresh. Private. Keep out. Moving on, he turned the torch beam on a square blue shape in the far corner, and saw with some astonishment the familiar shape of a police box, at that time, police boxes were a common enough sight on the streets of London. Inside was a special telephone that police, or even members of the public, could use to summon help in an emergency. An odd thing to find in a junkyard, thought the policeman. Maybe this particular one had become worn out and been sold off for scrap. There were rumors that all police boxes would eventually be phased out, that one day every constable would carry his own personal walkie-talkie radio. That'll be the day, thought the policeman. Still, the junk man must have bought the thing from somewhere. It was scarcely likely that he'd stolen it and lugged it off to his yard. The policeman grinned, imagining the desk sergeant's expression if he went back and asked if anyone had reported a missing police box. He paused for a moment, listening. There seemed to be some kind of electronic hum, probably some nearby generator, 
it was very faint. Moving on. In all the resultant fuss, the policeman forgot all about the oddly sighted police box. In time, he came to think he must have imagined it. Even if he hadn't, they couldn't possibly have had anything to do with the disappearances. After all, you couldn't get four people into a police box. Could you? So many insights in that passage alone. Getting into the mind of the patrolman, teasing the obsolescence of the police box, and, of course, you know that scene was a big influence on my favorite story, Legopolis, which also begins with a police constable having an unexpected encounter with a police box in the same script that later references Totter's Yard. Page 12. Everyone knew Miss Wright didn't stand for any nonsense. That's right, she doesn't. Ian on the same page, is described first as a cheerful, open-faced young man. Terence hasn't written for Peter Davison yet, but that day is coming, and a variation of that expression will be back. Terence does make the unfortunate comment that Mark highlighted for us earlier. Barbara should smile more. That has aged pretty badly today, but otherwise, I think Terence does her justice. Page 13. Barbara was frequently sharp-tongued, especially when tired or worried. So you can see I fell in love with Barbara just from this book alone, months before I'd watched any of her surviving episodes. Also, page 13. Me neither, said Ian, quote, ungrammatically. Thanks, Terence. Always there to point out mistakes in the original scripts that he's adapting. Page 15. Ian smiled to himself. It was very typical of Barbara to get herself worked up and go marching off to lecture some perfect stranger on his family responsibilities. Page 17. It's not so fashionable to be upper class these days, Terence adds to TV's uh, Ian Dialogue, describing how the Honorable Aubrey Waits became John Smith. That's a clever wrinkle on the line. Aubrey Waits is not the first lord to go by the down-market name John Smith on this show, not by a long shot, as Terence no doubt remembers from his novelization of Spearhead from Space. Ian wasn't exactly a pop fan, but he found it helped to keep in touch with the interest of his pupils, so he knew exactly what they were talking about, at least some of the time, end quote. One of the best character insights Terence ever wrote, and it's only one sentence long. And page 18, Ian looked thoughtfully at her. There was something strange about Susan Foreman, despite all her apparent normality. Her speech was almost too pure, too precise, and she had a way of observing you cautiously all the time, as if you were a member of some interesting but potentially dangerous alien species. There was a distant, almost unearthly quality about her. Terence makes the editorial change to drop Susan reading the French Revolution book and start making corrections, and instead ends chapter one with original dialogue, Ian enthusing over he and Barbara about to solve the mystery of Susan Foreman, much more so than they ever thought. Chapter two is called Enter the Doctor, and yes, Chapter 12 will be called Escape into Danger. Hello, Jim Sangster. Barbara, on page 20, is described as showing unthinking bossiness and flashing a disapproving look. You might think Terence is piling on poor Jackie Hill's character a bit. On the contrary, I think he's building Barbara up in anticipation of the Doctor's looming first appearance. The two of them clash early and often. Terence is building up their fights via pregame commentary. The page 21 description of the old UK pre-decimal currency was a Rosetta Stone for me, an American fan who didn't know such things. Still is, I suppose. The live in-studio flashbacks, 
expertly mounted by director Juarez Hussein in studio, with Susan talking direct to camera, to which Stephen Moffat visually quoted in Let's Kill Hitler with Mel's. That's preserved in the book. Ian on page 23 flashing, quote, back to the scene in the classroom. Terrence makes Susan's TV dialogue more pointed in the book, predicting the coming changeover to the decimal system, which was still in the future when the story was made, but in the past, as Terrence writes in 1981, Ian observes presciently on page 23 that Susan believes time travel is possible. The Doctor arrives on page 27. This was, absent the one pre-titles clip in The Five Doctors, my first direct experience of the Hartnell Doctor. Check out these two paragraphs, pages 26 and 27. Ian could just make out a cloaked figure advancing through the gloom. He dragged Barbara behind a pile of old furniture, and they ducked down out of sight. The dark shape came nearer and revealed itself as a white-haired old man wrapped in some kind of cloak. He wore an oddly shaped fur hat, and a long striped scarf was round around his neck. The old man paused for a moment, coughing, as old people do, and patted himself on the chest. He seemed to be muttering. He went up to the police box, fished a key out from his pocket, then opened the door. Chapter 2 ends with an unputdownable cliffhanger moment. Quote, Ian and Barbara stumbled into the police box and straight into sheer impossibility. Terence has described the TARDIS many times before, in the previous seven years' worth of Target novels he's already given us. This is the first time, really, that he gives us the TARDIS as an alien place. Page 33 of the Doctor's costume, quote, The general effect was that of a family solicitor from some 19th century novel. Like the statue in the padded chairs, the old man looks strangely out of place in this ultra-technological setting, but he was obviously quite at home here. On page 34, Terence adds an explanation to quickly distance the doctor from the I am foreman sign on the totter's yard gate. Barbara turned to the old man. So you must be Dr. Foreman. The old man smiled. Not really. The name was on the notice board, and I borrowed it. It might be best if you were to address me simply as doctor. The episode one cliffhanger is slightly reworked. This is a 12-chapter book, so the end of chapter 3 is traditionally the first cliffhanger moment, but Terence instead ends by showing us the TARDIS from the Totter's Yard perspective, and omits Waris Hussein's brilliant visuals-heavy time-travel sequence from inside the TARDIS. Check this. It was just as well that there was no one in the junkyard. If the policeman on the beat had paid a return visit at this particular moment, he would have seen a most extraordinary sight— with a strange, wheezing, groaning sound, the blue police box simply faded away. The TARDIS was in flight. The actual cliffhanger, the shadow looming over the TARDIS, instead begins with chapter 4, page 42, as we are introduced to Cal right away with a long two-page passage introducing the caveman. So now we come to the caveman part of the story. I'll confess, when I first read this, February 1985, still seven months away from seeing the episodes, I found the caveman material just as riveting as the first three chapters. I'm aware of a general reputation that the so-called Tribe of Gum episodes in fandom is less than stellar, but, as Mark and I discussed earlier, and one thing I try to not do on this show, which is two halves every week, is to belabor the same points in each half, so what I'll just say now is that Terence clearly relishes adapting this caveman material. 
He constantly weaves in his trademark humorous observations, jabs at the characters when they deserve it, or wicked insights. So I want to focus on that material. This is basically talking about why Terence is Terence, elevating a story that's never ranked among Doctor Who's top historicals, and making the caveman passages sizzle in the 87 pages of text devoted to it. Let me tell the story the way Terence tells it. I'm going to pull out from, let's say, Chapter 4, his best zingers. This is all Terence. There was game in the forest, savage beasts who provided meat for the stomachs of the tribe, and skins for their clothing, if you could kill them before they killed you. Cal's scheming mind considered the novelty, looking for ways to turn it to his own advantage. If there was magic here, he would find a way to make it work for him. According to the custom of the tribe, Old Mother should have been cast out of the cave to die, but some streak of softness in Za made him keep her alive. Strangely enough, this only made her despise her son the more. Often the beast was quicker or more cunning than the hunter. It kept the numbers of the tribe low and meant more food for those who lived. A full-grown son can be a rival, too. Since Horg was no longer the strongest, he would support the strongest. It was the law of survival. A leader must think of many things. That last line is Terence consciously calling ahead to a dialogue line from the episode 4 material, which you'll find preserved as dialogue on page 107, but Terence lays the groundwork early. When Ian calls the doctor Dr. Foreman in chapter 4, Terence omits the doctor's famous TV rebuttal. You really are a stubborn young man, aren't you? All right, show me some proof. Give me some concrete evidence. I'm sorry, Susan, I don't want to hurt you, but it's time you were brought back to reality. But you're wrong, Mr. Chesterton. They're saying I'm a charlatan. What concrete evidence would satisfy you, hmm? I just open the doors, Dr. Foreman. Eh? Dr. Who? What are you talking about? That's a series-defining line on TV, though arguably led to some deep hurting during the Innes Lloyd and Stephen Moffat eras when it was decided that Dr. Who was the character's real name, which, of course, as that audio clip suggests, it is not. Terence likely decides the line is really too direct, and besides, he'd already had the doctor decline the Dr. Foreman name earlier. The young audience with me at the Paley Center in New York City when I saw this there a decade ago, by the way, laughed heartily at that clip. They also cheered later on, when the doctor says that fear makes companions of us all. Even the young fans know the significance of the word companions. Also, at a different screening at Paley Center, Spearhead from Space, you should have heard the crowd laugh when John Pertwee plunges through a door marked Doctors Only. I really, really miss watching Doctor Who in crowds. Of course, Terence is not perfect. The description of the prehistoric landscape in the first paragraph of Chapter 4, through Cal's eyes, is word-for-word identical to the description of the same landscape in the first paragraph of Chapter 5, through Ian's eyes. Page 55 has Susan describe an ionic column as one of the TARDIS's past shapes. That's another detail from the serial that Christopher H. Bidmead built from and Legopolis. And I think I understand now why I love both those stories. Legopolis is almost a direct sequel to this tale, in continuity terms. Terence, by the way, and clearly he and Bidmead could not be characterized as friends, but Terence borrows a head from Legopolis to insert the term chameleon circuit on page 56, where it wouldn't have been on television in 1963, when the term had not yet been coined. Of course, in Terence's next book after this one, he's going to take a direct run at Bidmead, but we'll save that for two weeks from now. 
The dialogue between the cavemen and Cave of Skulls is pretty sizzling, at least for me. Characters insult one another with deft sarcasm and also speak in poetry. We fought together like the tiger and the bear. The smoke comes from his mouth as lies come out of yours. Terence loves a good political dust-up, and the caveman three-parter is full of politicking and campaigning. On page 64, perhaps my favorite Terence line yet in the book, and in case you couldn't tell from the length of this audio essay, there's a lot of competition as to my favorite lines. The bearded savage who had captured him seemed to be making some kind of speech. Even in the Stone Age, there were still politicians to deal with. Page 67. The men of the tribe were muttering discontentedly. With the doctor's failure to perform the promised miracle, opinion was beginning to swing against Cal. One can imagine Terence was watching Prime Minister's question time immediately before writing this chapter. Another thing Terence loves is inventing inner dialogue or private thoughts in parentheticals. Page 71, containing two masterpieces of the form. In one, Ian mentally calls the doctor an old fool. In another, Terence says, luckily. And hey, pro tip, when Terence writes, luckily, look out. Some plot hole's about to get exposed. Luckily, their hands had been tied in front of them. In Chapter 7, Terence removes a gratuitous bit where Zah shoves her. Old Mother is well characterized on page 72. Terence working hard to flesh out this character, who is the very first person killed on Doctor Who. Page 72. Only Old Mother was still awake. Fire leaped in her mind, but not as a savior, her protector. To Old Mother, fire was an evil demon. Her confused mind associated it with the death of her husband, Gore, and with all the misfortunes that had come upon the tribe. The strangers threatened to bring fire. The strangers were evil, too. Old Mother thought for a long time, wondering how she might save the tribe from the menace of fire. At last, she thought of a way. Eileen Way, by the way, was only 52 when she played Old Mother. The character reads as 80. In actuality, the character in prehistoric times probably would have been 40, if that. Page 80. The Ghastly Cave with its stench of death and shattered grinning skulls. <laughs> That's harsh. Zah and her knelt, examining the traces left by the strangers on their passage through the jungle, markings as clear to them as road signs to a modern motorist. Terence never missing an opportunity to reveal the thought processes, even of minor characters. On page 87, Terence narrates four passages from the point of view of the tiger that attacks Zah. Come on, that's pretty cool. Less cool is the editing error on the bottom of page 87, top of page 88, that repeats a couple of paragraphs. Surprised that never got fixed, even in this, the fourth publishing. As Zah kills the tiger on page 89, it screams and, quote, rage and pain. That's an old, familiar Terence descriptor. As common and as welcome in his books as his frequent use of adjectives like savage or weird or gleaming. On page 94, Terence graphically depicts Cal's murder of Old Mother, which was merely implied on TV by the camera cutting away to another scene. In the book, Old Mother stares disbelievingly as she dies. I haven't been keeping track of that word, but I seem to recall that a lot of people will die disbelievingly in Terence's novelizations. On page 96, the moment where the doctor approaches Zah with a rock, Terence adds, just how much ruthlessness was the doctor capable of if he felt it might save his own and Susan's life? Back in episode 59, 
I talked much about the keys of Marinus, and how the doctor serving as Ian's defense counsel in the murder trial may have been the character's first stand-up-and-cheer moment in the series. But when I said that, I've been forgetting that this story, too, has a trial scene. Terence even calls it that, though of course the cavemen will not yet have a written code of laws or a criminal justice system. A kind of trial was taking place, Terence says, and the doctor and the other's own fates were probably at stake as well. Page 102, quote, in some extraordinary way, the doctor was dominating the whole savage gathering. Let's listen to some audio from episode 4, The Firemaker, on TV. The old woman is dead. Zah! Kill the old woman! No! Zah! Kill the old woman with his knife! No! Huh? Yeah. Yeah! There's a knife he killed her with. This knife has no blood on it. I said, this knife has no blood on it. It is a bad knife. It does not show the things it does. It is a finer knife than yours. My cow says it's a bad knife. This knife can cut and stab. I have never seen a better knife. I will show you one. This knife shows what it has done. There is blood on it. Who killed the old woman? I did not kill her. You killed the old woman. Yes! She set them free. She set them free. She did this. My cow killed her. Is this our strong leader? One who kills your old woman? He is a bad leader. He will kill you all. Follow my example. Drive him out. The doctor telling Barbara on page 103 that her own people are just as susceptible to mass hysteria as the cavemen is one of Doctor Who's first pointed political barbs, written just a few years after McCarthyism over here in the States. If this is Doctor Who at its most woke, I am here for it. Terence, by the way, in Chapter 10, does the thing that Waras Hussein could not do. Eileen Way was only contracted for Episodes 2 and 3 in a serial shot a week at a time. She had no scripted dialogue in episode 4, the character already being dead at this point, so it does not appear on screen. Terence recalls that he's writing a book without budget cuts, at least not to the mind's eye. So, Old Mother's Corpse appears a few times in chapter 10. Brutal, uncompromising stuff. This is no mere children's fiction. Terence also adds much to the scene in episode 4 where Ian makes fire this time making it the Doctor's idea, not Ian's, as implied in a much briefer TV moment, again giving the Doctor more agency because, as Mark and I discussed, this is 1981. We already know who the Doctor is going to become. Terence has subtly restructured the book to remind us of who the Doctor is now, and not merely of what he had not yet become in December 1963 when this material aired. Chapter 11 is a good example of how Terence uses prose to build on the story. In the first scene, page 110, Ian's internal thoughts dwell on how the Doctor is taking credit for all his hard work, and how bored his companions are in captivity as they hover over Ian, waiting for him to make fire faster. Terence also gleefully narrates how quickly the old men turn on Zah when he's not on the main cave to, to reassure them, 
which mirrors perhaps the golden calf sequence from the Book of Exodus. Zah's guard gets strangled by Zah because he's, quote, not very alert, lacks the discipline for any prolonged task. The doctor watches Zah's final fight with Cal, quote, like some Roman emperor watching two gladiators in the arena. Spoiler alert, that will soon be Ian himself, tussling with stuntman Peter Diamond before a real Roman emperor, Caesar Nero. As Cal dies, page 116, this time Terence doesn't describe him dying in a pool of gore, disbelievingly, but rather says, quote, Now there was one more shattered skull in the Cave of Skulls. A significant change to chapter 12, apart from the one Mark brought up earlier. On TV, it's the tribe female, her, who falls for the ruse of the burning skulls. In the book, Terence is going to change that to make it a male extra who gets fooled. That's right. The female of the species is stronger. And then, there's the last three paragraphs. Terence does something he's rarely done up till this point, and that's preview the next TV story. It's a story we already know. It was the very first Doctor Who novelization. We covered it back on episode one. Doctor Who and the Daleks. And we'll give Terence something he always deserves. The last word. Although the Doctor and his companions were not yet aware of it, they were heading into even greater danger. The planet on which they had landed was called Scarrow, and it had been devastated by years of warfare between two races, the Khaleds and the Thals. Over the long years of warfare, the Khaleds had changed, mutated even, building themselves war machines in which to live and fight. They had changed their name as well as their appearance. The Doctor was about to meet the creatures who were destined to become his greatest enemies. Out there on Scarrow, the Daleks were waiting for him. Next time on Doctor Who Literature, we have reached the end of 1981. As we always do on this podcast, we take a one-week break after every two years' worth of books. There will be an episode next week, but as we're at the end of Season 4 of this program, in between 1981 and 1982... Next week's episode will be a bonus episode, and our 1981 season is ending much better than the New York Yankees' 1981 baseball season did. Next week, Philip Hinchcliffe is back, talking to us about his memories of working with the late Chris Boucher. And remember how Harlan Ellison wrote an introduction to the Pinnacle books, the late 1970s American reprints of 10 select target novelization? Thanks to the help of our listener, Jason Davis, who happens to have been Harlan Ellison's editor. We are about to find out exactly how that introduction came to be. You are not going to want to miss next week's episode, when Doctor Who Literature sets its sights on two champions of the form, Chris Boucher and Harlan Ellison. Thank you for joining me on another episode of the Doctor Who Literature podcast. Thanks to my childhood memories of Mickey Mouse and Howard Cosell both heard via YouTube clips earlier in this episode, and special thanks to my special guest, Mark McManus from the Trap One Podcast. This podcast can be found on most of your podcast apps of choice. You can find all past episodes at anchor.fm slash Lit. It really helps if you rate five stars and subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels, that's D-R Who Novels. You can find my old tweets about the entire series under the hashtag Doctor Who Pilgrimage, that's DR Who Pilgrimage. 
my current Twilight Zone watch-through under hashtag TZPilgrimage, and on email at Doctor Who Literature, that's drwholiterature at gmail.com. Please drop me a line with your comments, questions, and suggestions. Thank you for listening, and whatever you do, keep turning the pages. Doctor Who Podcast Network.